Well, good afternoon, Folsom Bible. We're so glad you are with us today. I invite you to stand with me and we'll begin our service by reading Psalm 8. Psalm 8. For the choir director on the Gittith, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens from the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than God. You have crowned him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the path of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let us pray. Our Lord God, we are so thankful for another day, for another opportunity to gather together as your people and to extol you, to praise you because you are truly majestic. You run this universe, you uphold every single molecule in this universe, and yet you pay attention to us when we come and when we honor your name. Lord Jesus, we have gathered here today to praise you. We have gathered here today, Lord, to sing songs to your name, to meditate on what you have prepared for us to hear from you. We ask, Lord, that you would bless the service. Spirit of God, we ask that you would guide everything that will take place here. Every word that will be spoken, every song that will be sung, Lord, may it be honoring to Jesus Christ. May it edify us and build us up so that we would go from here on fire for you. We pray that you bless every single person who's here and who's watching or listening to this. For your glory, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
it will rejoice when the works of wicked men you finally destroy.
Amen. Praise God. Well, we are uh, glad to be here. And as always, I'll make a few announcements regarding the week coming up before we go to the Word. This week, as usual, on Tuesday night, is going to be our time together with the church to pray for one another. Tuesday at 7.30, we'll come and we'll pray for one another. We encourage you to submit your requests, submit your praises. And as always, we pray for the things that are submitted. We pray for the church and for one another. And we encourage you to be part of that Tuesday at 7.30. On Saturday this week, we are resuming Folsom Bible Academy. Uh, Because this is a new session that we're starting, we completed Systematic Theology, 57 chapters of Grudem. So we're starting something new this Saturday morning. We're going to do Old Testament survey. And just so you know what it is, Folsom Bible Academy exists to raise men who would serve in the body of Christ, whether that's going to be in the leadership or teaching Bible study or it's just our way of training people because we don't want to just send people somewhere so that they would be trained by someone else, but we want to raise people up. And so for the men who want to learn, who want to understand what the Scripture teaches, we encourage you to be part of that, to come Saturday morning and every Saturday for two hours we basically spend in the Word. And now that we're going to be doing Old Testament survey, over the next six months we're going to be in the Old Testament. One book every single week we go over what, what is it about, and so you'll have a broad understanding of Scripture. So that's Saturday morning starting this Saturday. Next Sunday, because it's going to be the last Sunday of the month, we will have our Q&A, so we encourage you to plan ahead for that. After the service, we'll have about an hour for any questions you may have, so plan uh, to stick around after service for that. And the following Sunday is going to be our semi-annual members meeting. Now, a members meeting, it's open to everyone who comes, so it's not, you don't have to be a member to be part of this. If you've been attending, if you've been part of this, we encourage you to be part of that so you can hear about the church, so you can uh, look back at the last six months that we had, hear some reports, and look forward to the next six months, what we're planning to do. So we encourage you to be part of that, just so you mark your calendars, February 4th, 2024. Now, next Sunday, also, just a reminder, that is going to be our birthday, two years. Next Sunday is going to be our birthday. Well, today marks the 40th anniversary of the National Sanctity of Life Day observance, which was first inaugurated by Reagan on January 22, 1984. And the goal of this day is to bring light to the issue of abortion. Now, this is not a political issue that we can disagree about because this is Bible issue. Because abortion is euphemism for baby murder. And God has much to say about that. And so today, our goal is to focus on this issue because if we're honest, this issue has more effect on the church than we are willing to admit. There are people in the church who have had abortions. There are those who have encouraged others to have abortions. And there are many who have just been silent about the issue and have never spoken up about it. Now, we want to dedicate our Sunday or our sermon to this issue today because Bible has much to say about it. Because for those who have had abortion, the answer is the gospel. For those who have contributed to abortions in any way, the answer is the gospel. For those who want to minister to people who have been affected by abortion, the answer is the gospel. 
That's why we want to go to the Word today, Psalm 139. Antonio will preach a sermon entitled, Wonderfully Made, so that we would get God's perspective on this issue, because we don't have to be silent about it, because God's Word has answers. There are many people who are hurt by it, and many people for many years carry that pain in themselves. And very often in the church, they don't feel like they can talk to anybody. We don't want to be that place because we want to extend the gospel to those people because God can heal, God can forgive, God can restore. And that's why today we want to take this special time to focus on this issue. And next Sunday, we'll begin our verse-by-verse study of the gospel of John. Now it's our opportunity to give to the Lord and participate in the offering. So would you stand with me and pray, and we'll worship the Lord through giving. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are Lord of life. We thank you that you give life, you sustain life, and you prolong our days. Lord Jesus, we thank you even for this opportunity today to address this issue that has plagued our culture. Millions of innocent lives have been terminated in the womb. And Lord, we ask that you would forgive us as a culture, as people who have in any way contributed to that. I pray that your word would speak clearly on this issue today. And I pray for anyone here who is here or who will listen to this, who has been affected by this issue, we pray that your gospel would bring healing, your gospel would bring restoration, that you would, through the power of your word, come alongside and restore such people. We ask that you would be exalted through all this. We pray also that you would take what we have brought and receive it from our hands for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.
Well, good afternoon. Let's see. Can we pray here first before we open the word together? Well, Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather, to sing praises to your name and to open your book and to hear your voice from your word. We ask, Holy Spirit, you come and illumine your truth to us and open our eyes and conform us more into the image of your blessed Son as we look into the Word. And so I pray you'll have your way with us and unite us in the truths that we will look at this day. So we ask all of this in the name of Christ and for his glory. Amen. Well, if you would open to Psalm 139, please. We will be in a number of different passages just because it's such a broad topic and I want to cover certain aspects that I think are important, but our main thrust will be Psalm 139. And so today, which is called, as you know, the Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, on January 22nd, 1984, President Reagan issued a presidential proclamation designating the third Sunday of every January as National Sanctity of Human Life Day. This is a day to be set aside, as Max said earlier, to bring awareness to the the attacks that are being daily waged against the unborn through the abortion industry. We openly and loudly, as you can tell, stand against abortion here because God does. Today, with the time we have, I want to show us or I want to remind us from Scripture what the Creator thinks about humans. I I want us to see what He says about us, and then I want to observe from these different passages, we'll come to understand the value that He puts on humanity Not to be man-centered like the world wants us to be, but what does God say about man and as a whole and as individuals? And then we will see the uniqueness of humans to all other creatures. We will come to see the exalted position that humans have compared to all other creatures. We will come to understand then more clearly, I hope, why abortion is an assault upon God and His glory, and why we, will, why we stand against it. And then finally, there is hope for, in the gospel. There is hope in the gospel. So before we dive into this, I do want to bring to our attention some appalling statistics. And I know statistics can be rather boring and cold and crass, but remember there are names and faces attached to these numbers. These are real humans that went through these things, and this information comes from CDC and Guttmacher. Since the dreaded day in 1973 till 2020, 63.6 million abortions legally have happened in the United States. This works out to 930,160 abortions a year or 2,548 abortions a day or 106 abortions an hour or one abortion every 34 seconds. 
Planned Parenthood, the largest provider of abortion, says that the average cost for them to perform an abortion is around $600. Well, if you take $600 times 930,160 abortions a year, you come to 558 million $960,000. So it's quite a lucrative business, this abortion industry. But then you would ask the question, what is the reason that a young lady or even an older lady would have an abortion? This information comes from apparently they would do exit surveys to those who were willing to speak. And they said, concerning an unwanted pregnancy, that they were not ready to be a parent was the number one reason given for an abortion. Second was they couldn't afford it or they thought they could not afford it. Third was the absence of the father in the picture. Fourth given is that the baby would interfere with school, work, or other possibilities, basically seen as an inconvenience. Now, there are numerous arguments attempting to justify abortions, such as the slogan, a woman's right to choose, which is by far the loudest one, since it is her body, the argument goes, she has the right to do with it as she pleases. The argument is society or government or the church or anybody has no right to speak against this or to keep anyone from doing this because it's her right. It's her body. But a question would be, well, what about the child's rights? Just as a simple argument. And that question begins to uncover the most crucial issue in this issue. Is it right to even call it a child? Isn't that assuming that it is a living human to call it a child? You see, here's the linchpin of this argument and has been since 73. When does life begin? Back in 1973, the justices that heard the, the Roe versus Wade case, they stated in their arguments that they couldn't find agreement amongst professionals on when life began. Doctors, theologians, there, it was indecisive, they said. And so therefore, as justices, who were they to decide when life began? And therefore, in January of 1973, they put forth legalizing abortion and forced on the American psyche this abomination, and it was under the auspice of merely a procedure like any other minor surgery, because it's just a clump of cells. Well, this was deceptive at best and absolutely wicked at worst. Actually, there is no confusion in the matter as to when life begins. It is a medical observable fact that life begins at conception. There's no, there's no confusion on the matter. 
No matter what the circumstances are then of conception, no matter how far along in the pregnancy, abortion always ends the life of an individual human being. Always. The many different quotes that I came across to support this from medical professionals is, is staggering. And it's just a, just a sample, but I want you to hear these things. And then I want you to hear from abortionists who don't disagree. For anybody honestly in the medical field knows when life begins. In 1981, the United States Senate Judiciary Subcommittee received the following testimony from a collection of so-called medical experts, doctors and such. Michelin Matthews Roth, who's a professor at Harvard University Medical School, says, said, it is incorrect to say that biological data cannot be decisive. It is scientifically correct to say that an individual human life begins at conception. Dr. Alfred Boganani, who is a professor of pediatrics and obstetrics at University of Pennsylvania, says, I have learned from my earliest medical education that human life begins at the time of conception. One doctor said, after fertilization has taken place, a new human being has come into being. It is no longer a matter of taste or opinion. It is a plain and experimental evidence. Each individual has a very neat beginning at conception. A professor at Mayo Clinic wrote, By all the criteria of modern molecular biology, life is present from the moment of conception. Dr. Watson Bowes, University of Colorado Medical School, wrote, The beginning of a single human life is, from a biological point of view, a simple and straightforward matter. The beginning is conception. Therefore, every honest medical person has to conclude unequivocally that life begins at conception. But there are abortion advocates who don't deny this. Faye Waddleton, the longest reigning president of the largest abortion business in the United States, Planned Parenthood, argued as far back as 1997 that everyone already knows that abortion kills. She proclaims in the following, in an interview in Miss Magazine, quote, I think we have deluded ourselves into believing that people don't know that abortion is killing. So any pretense... That abortion is not killing is a signal of our ambivalence, our confusion. A signal that we cannot say, yes, it kills a fetus. Bernard Nathanson co-founded one of the most influential abortion advocacy, advocacy groups, NARAL, N-A-R-A-L. It once served as a medical director, Bernard Nathanson did, for the largest abortion clinic in America, as far back as 1974, he wrote an article for the New England Journal of Medicine in which he states, quote, There is no longer serious doubt in my mind that human life exists within the womb from the very onset of pregnancy. Some years later, that same person wrote, There is simply no doubt that even the early embryo is a human being. All its genetic coding and all its features are indisputably human as to being, there is no doubt that it exists, is alive, is self-directed, and is, and is not the same being as the mother, and is therefore a unified whole. You know that. 
The embryo has a separate skeletal system, a separate circulatory system, has its own fingerprints. It's not the same as the mother. It's a different person planted in the mother's womb. And it's alive since conception. So says a doctor who's a believer in Christ. So says a doctor who's not a believer in Christ. And so says a abortion advocate. Nobody denies that life begins at conception. There is no debate among honest, informed people that abortion kills distinctly human beings. So then, what we as a country have allowed and celebrate is a woman's right to choose to kill her very own child. And most often, and I know there's different issues, and I don't mean to um, be negligent in my presentation, but I'm, I'm giving a broad view of this, that a woman's right to kill her own child most often is because the child is an inconvenience. So please don't fall prey and help those whom you know not to fall prey to the ridiculous propaganda that produce, presents this as reproductive rights or a woman's health care. It's simply the killing of an innocent child, period. Think of this crazy schizophrenic mindset in America, in the same hospital, on the same floor, across the hall, a doctor could be performing a surgery to help relieve a cardiac problem in an infant that's yet to be born. And across the hall, the very same place, a doctor could be taking the life because the mother doesn't want the child. And both are legal. Both are, both are performed in the womb. That life beginning at conception is an observable biological fact that is undeniable. And you don't need to be a Christian to figure that out. So since we're talking of a living human being, it leads me to ask, and I wanted to put that forward so you hear that, and then come to this, ask this question and start to look, what does God say about humans? What does God say about humans? And this is the foundation of the sanctity of human life Sunday. Sanctity is from a word which means holy, which means to be set apart, set apart from all other, all the rest. It is to be set apart from that and set apart unto this. And the word holy comes from this. And it is, it is to be distinct. It is to be unique. It is to be special even. It is to be a cut above. So sanctity means to be separated from all other things uniquely whatever the purpose is. Sanctity of life is saying that each individual human life is special, unique, distinct. In what way? Well, in our text, Psalm 139, you're going to see that each individual person is the work of his hands. What does God say about humans? The first thing he says is that each one of us, each human, is uniquely an individual person who is the work of his hands. Look at verse 13, please. For you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. 
Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. 15. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when yet there was not one of them. In the context of this psalm, the 12 verses before, the author, David, is putting forth the attributes of God, primarily his omniscience and his omnipresence. God is everywhere. Where he says in verse 7, where can I go from your spirit? God is everywhere present in all of his totality. He's, all omniscience speaks to his knowledge. There is no knowledge he does not have. He possesses all knowledge. There's nothing that God does not know about anything. Okay? God is everywhere present in his totality. He just reveals it in different ways. He's ever, he is present in in. Hell and judgment, and he's present in heaven, says Scripture. And there's no place where God is not. And so David is writing this Psalm 139 to exalt God in his omnipresence and his omniscience. When you get to our verses, in verse 13, he's elevating God's omnipotence. God possesses all power. This God who knows all and is everywhere present also possesses all power. And in our text, his power is manifest, is used, is expressed in forming a little person in the womb of the mother. Okay? So now look at this here. How amazing it is that God cannot be kept from the womb. He is present everywhere, including the womb. He, he's, in verse 7, it says in Psalm 139, Where can I go from your spirit, or where can I flee from your presence? He goes on to give extremes there, but when you get to verse 12, look at what it says there. It says, even the darkest, darkness is not dark to you, and the night is as bright as day. Darkness and light are alike to you. Nothing can be hid from God in darkness, and there's probably no darker place than the womb of a mother. And it's there in verse 13 where God is said to be knitting together and forming together in the womb of a mother, okay? Now, God's presence, God's power is involved in conception. His presence, get this, he is there and he's fully aware and he's involved and he's even the cause of the fusion of the male gamete and the female gamete. In the womb of the mother, God is the one who fuses the two, and there's even electron microscopes that show at the moment of fertilization, conception, there's like a little spark of life and light, and that's God bringing life together. He's the cause of it. And it's in the womb of the mother. And this God who's everywhere, who knows everything and has all power, he is in the womb of the mother bringing this about, if you will. Um, it's an amazing reality. You, you, God is not absent from the womb. Abortion's a direct assault on God and his glory. It's a big deal, right? The, 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 
Think of this. God is the one who brings new life. God is the source of all life. It says in Scripture that children are a gift from the Lord. If they're a gift from the Lord, He's the one who gives them because He's the one who's brought it about. He's the creator of them. He's the one who opens and closes the womb. Scripture's testimony is very clear. That means God prevents fertilization just as much as he allows it and causes it. I find that fascinating. I'm an animal science. Um, what do you, that's what I studied in, in my uh, undergraduate. So biology and physiology is, is cool to me. And to think about God as being intricately and intimately involved in the, the womb of a mother in the fallopian tube, and God is there making these things happen. <laughs> and he's the one that implants in the womb this fertilized embryo. That's God's doing, you see. That's God's doing. And if you look at verse 13, look at the words that are used by David when he says, you formed my inward parts. You created my inward parts. And the inward parts, if you have a... Um, subscript number it takes you and tells you literally in the Hebrew the word for inward parts is kidneys and to the Hebrew the idea of kidneys is is the inner person it's often translated heart it's often translated heart so what David is saying in verse 13 for you formed you created my inner person I think King James even says conscience you created my inner being. You created my heart. You created my, my mind, my, my emotions, my attitude, my conscience. You see, you created that, Lord. It says, look what it says parallel in verse 13. You wove me in my mother's womb. Wove means to knit together, to interweave. It's used of someone building a roof. Think of this on a dwelling by using sticks and branches and weaving it to, to enclose this building they're making so it doesn't leak. That's the word used here. He is saying that God wove me, interwove me in my mother's womb. How, how personal is that? How cool is that? It's like your grandmother knitting a sweater, Miss Belma. That's the first thing that came to my mind was your grandma, right? God is knitting like your grandma knitting a sweater. He's knitting together that little person. That little human is the handiwork of God. The sacred room in which this happens is the mother's womb. In verse 14, he goes on. Look at what he says here. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Now, how does David know these things? Did he have a microscope? Did he have an ultrasound? No. He had divine revelation of the one who knows what's going on in the womb. And through David, David can write these things that he has really no understanding of personally. But he's praising God for how he is made. And notice what it says, fearfully. That is to be with honor. It, 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 it speaks of the awesomeness of the act. I am 
an awesome act of God. It goes on to say, look in 14, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. The word wonderfully speaks of something that's unusual. It's, it's literally has this idea of that which is too difficult. In other words, it's miraculous. God is knitting together the little human in the womb like a grandmother knitting a sweater, and it is awesome, and it is miraculous. It is not something to be ho-humming about. He goes on to say in the verse 14, please, wonderful are your works. Miraculous, awesome are your works. And notice he uses the general phrase, your works, creation, providence, God's miraculous works throughout history, all of his works include the intricate making of a human in the womb of the mother is included in the marvelous, awesome works of God. Look at verse 15. My frame, that's his bones, the the structure, his, his bones, was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. The depths of the earth is probably a poetic way of speaking of the womb. It's just a place that's out of sight. It's a place that's dark. Okay? Now, look at, look at the word skillfully wrought. If, if you have my New American, trends, New American Standards, says skillfully wrought. This means intricately woven. It's used in Exodus 26, verse 36, when they knitted and twisted linen together to make a veil, to make a curtain for the tabernacle. In that same way, same way as grandma knits together, but even more, it speaks of like embroidery. The emphasis here is the careful, intentional, handy work of God. The detailed work of God. How about that means that there's no accident. You are as you are because the Creator made you as you are. Now we're not talking sin here. We're talking just creation as a being, as a creature. God has. Why do you have blue eyes? Did you choose that? Right? Did you choose the color? Well, some ladies do, but um, <laughs> I'll better stop there. I haven't chosen my hair color yet. Um, (laughs) But who decided that, right? Who decided how your mouth looks, how your teeth are? How do you, did you have any choice in that? Did you put in your request during conception? Lord, I'd like to be 6'4 and about 255 pounds. Apparently he didn't get it, (laughs) right? No, God intricately, personally, intentionally, purposely, Knits you together in the embroidery like a grandma does on a shirt. The embroidery, God embroidered you together. The psalmist is emphasizing that. I want to emphasize that because when you think of abortion, it's a direct assault on a, on a room and a project that is sacred, that is God's. It's evil. 
Job says in Job 10, verse 8, Your hands fashioned me and made me altogether. Jeremiah 1, 5, Before I formed you in the innermost parts, I knew you. Proverbs 20, verse 12 says, The hearing ear and the seeing eye, the Lord has made both of them. The Lord has made both of them. Think of this, even so-called deformities. In Exodus 4, remember when God went after Moses and said, Moses, I want to send you to Pharaoh and I want you to say these things. And Moses said, no, you're not. Right? I've never been one to speak. My tongue is too harsh. It's too thick. I'm not a good speaker, Lord. And as though it depended on Moses... The Lord's response in Exodus 4, verse 11, listen to what he says. And the Lord said to him, said to Moses, Who has made man's mouth? Or who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Did you get that? Blindness is the intricate work of God. For his purpose. That's what it says. Who's responsible is what God is saying. He's responsible. Because he's the creator. Wow. And when God became, think of this, when God became a man in Jesus Christ, he showed, Jesus did, he showed his creative power, thus God's creative power, in the healing of the deaf, of giving sight to the blind. He healed physically lame people. He raised the dead. The point is this. If he could do it outside of the womb, he most certainly can do it inside of the womb. He's the intricate, sovereign designer and creator. That's awesome. Now think with me a bit. If, we're, if we are wonderfully made, what is so wonderful about us? Well, if you ask me, no, I'm just kidding. It's <laughs> the human body. Think of this. And I, oh, I was so intrigued. I could have gone on for hours. I'll spare you. I'm not going to. I just picked a few things here. But think about how it is humans are fearfully and wonderfully made and hand-knit together. The human body. Two arms, two legs, a head, a chest, stomach. Simple enough on the surface. In reality, however, it is an incredibly designed orchestra of parts perfectly created to work together. Your body parts from the largest bones and the organs to the smallest molecules and cells are put together with precision, with such precision that no engineer could design or or body, our body is able to do remarkable things, a vast array of things. And it must do many of them nonstop without your attention. Think of this. The same body that can use a hammer to drive a nail can hold a feather without crushing it. The same eyes can take in the expanse of the Grand Canyon and yet detect faint light from stars many light years away. Your lungs enable you to talk and sing without forgetting to take oxygen and release carbon dioxide. You've been thinking about that lately? 
Breathe. Okay, now get rid of carbon dioxide. <laughs> no, but your lungs do, right? If you had to think about breathing, you could never go to sleep because you would die within minutes. Who keeps it going when you're sleeping? Your digestive system is becoming more aware in my life these days. It breaks down the food into chemicals you need for energy. Are you thinking about that? Your heart pumps blood through miles and miles of blood vessels to deliver oxygen and nutrients to the most unseen places. Directed by your brain, you walk and run and throw a ball and play a video game and read a book. You paint a picture or even play an instrument. However, the same brain also controls many essential activities inside your body that you're probably not aware of. Your bones give your body shape and support even while they grow. Your skin protects you from the outside world. Your blood carries oxygen, as we said, and the tiny tools to fight off harmful germs. Talk about a fascinating study is how white blood cells and phagocytes work against invaders of bacteria to keep your body safe. And you have no clue what's going on, right? It's fascinating. But that's God's design, the wisdom of God. And it's true of every human. He put us together that way. Your liver manufactures chemicals you need while it breaks down toxins. And your kidneys rid your blood, amazing, of many waste products and help control the amount of water in your body. The amazing list of unseen and unceasing processes that must go on simultaneously for your body to work properly goes on and on and on. There are so many intricate, essential parts, but we can't look at them all today as much as I'd want to, but I want to mention a few. Again, remember we're promoting the work of God in identifying how fearfully and wonderfully you are made. It has nothing to do with you and I. You have no part in it. This is all the sovereign work of God. How about the cell? You ever heard of a cell? There's, I mean, I've I read thousands, probably thousands at Montana State on the cell. But listen, I'll just summarize it in a paragraph. <laughs> the cell is the, the, the basic building block of our existence. There are many different kinds of cells in our body. For example, there's liver cells, there's muscle cells, there's kidney cells, there's nerve cells, skin cells, blood cells, and all other kinds of cells, right? Within the cell, the nuclei, which is where the energy takes place and the mindset, basically, of this, this thing you cannot see without a microscope, the instructions on how they are to replicate and repair is in a code. And the code is written in a structure known as DNA. You know, the double helix that spins around, right? Long chain of molecules that are stored in the nucleus. The blueprint for making each protein the cell is supposed to make is written in a gene in the DNA. Who wrote the code? Did you have any part in that code? Any say in it? No. It's the design of God. Well, how about the heart? It's about the size of your fist. Weighs about three pounds pumps 8,000 liters of blood around your body 
every day. Did you know that the blood cells <laughs> and vessels in your body, if put together, length, would go 100,000 miles or five times around the earth? In your body. And your heart pumps blood to every one of those dudes. Right? How about the human eye? It can differentiate between more than 7 million colors. I didn't know there was that many colors. Who knows these things? How about the human skin? It has thousands of sensors that detect sensations and relay information to the brain. It's hot. Oh, it's cold. How, how do you know there's a spider walking on your hand? How do you know that? That dude don't weigh but micro something something. How do you know he's on there? God designed your skin that way. It's fascinating. Just fascinating. Right? Did you know the human heart beats more than three billion times in an average lifespan? Three billion times. Let me ask you this. How many times have you told your heart to beat? And yet it beats three billion times. Are you fearfully and wonderfully made? I hope to shout. Right? Glory to God. And to think that this all came about through random processes of chance is to be absolutely retarded. Right? It's a poor use of the brain cells that God gave you. <laughs> right? And it's evil because you're rejecting the creator. Right? Evolution is absolutely retarded. When you start to analyze these things, it's incredible. And it's all because of the handiwork of God. Well, what about the brain? Some of us have more than others, but, <laughs> right? One of the greatest wonders of our body is the brain. Think of this. The human brain can store the same amount of information, apparently, as 20,000 dictionaries. Mine's about at eight, but, you know, I'm on the lower end. <laughs> but even that's pretty amazing, 8,000 dictionaries. 20,000 dictionaries, information in your brain. The brain defines, think of this, who we are as human beings. It produces thoughts. I don't know how it does that, and I don't think anybody does, really. Makes decisions, sets goals, forms memories, gives us our personalities, regulates our emotions, allows us to interact with our world, Our brains tell our muscles to contract, our lungs to expand, and our hearts to beat. There are countless functions of brain. The brain performs in many of them which are not entirely understood by science or medicine. Researchers, I read, estimate your brain has 86, listen to this, 86 billion brain cells. 86 billion, anything's a lot. <laughs> But brain cells in that little pea brain of mine, that's amazing, right? And information in the brain, think of this, travels up to 268 miles an hour. And you may never give a thought to that. <laughs> a single nerve cell called a neuron can send 1,000 impulses a second to your brain. Your brain can process images you see in less time than it takes to blink. And I read this and I thought, that's interesting, right? Your brain creates enough electricity to power a small LED light bulb. That's why they used to say, you know, the light's on but no one's home. 
<laughs> oh, I got to give you more. Hold on. The lungs. I mean, it's incredible. The lungs. The primary function of the respiratory system is to bring oxygen into our lungs. And there is an exchange. The air goes into your lungs and out into the alveoli and these, these little grape cluster things in your lungs here. And there's an exchange through those membranes where the, the oxygen comes and goes out and the CO, the, the carbon dioxide comes in and there's, there's uh, the, this transfer, okay? It, and it, the waste product of carbon dioxide is then removed through your exhalation. You, you exhale, okay? Um, and removed from the body. Each day... It is said that 5,000 gallons of air are transported through airways leading into and extending throughout the lungs. The airways branch and diminish in size 22 times. Get smaller, 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 22 times. So that the airways reaching out, if you put it all together, would combine to 14,900 miles. The, The wisdom of God in the surface area where this transfer takes place. You talk about maximizing size. And those things that are so crucial, your lungs, look how God made you. He put it behind your skeleton, your, your ribs to protect that. About 2,600 gallons of transported air are delivered into and removed from 300 million tiny, thin-walled, hollow sacs known as avaloi. Sounds like Italians, but it's not. They exchange oxygen required for our red blood cells and carbon dioxide to be transferred and exhaled out. Did you give any thought to that? No, we ought to give thanks, though, (laughs) right? That's why David says, man, I give you thanks. I give you praise, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wow. All this is designed by the wisdom of God and handcrafted and formed by him. And so we do exclaim with David, we give thanks for how we are made. But not only are we wonderfully made, and I do have to move on here, even more than being so wonderfully made is that each individual person is bestowed with an inherent nobility, an inherent dignity, if you will, okay? In Genesis chapter 1, I know you know these things. Listen to verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. You see, that wonderfully made human is even more gloriously understood when you understand you're made in the image of the creator, in the image and likeness of the creator. Every single human being is made in the image of God. There is no human who has more or less of the image of God, okay? Even sin could not destroy the image in mankind. It tainted and it scars it, but it has not destroyed it. So that man is still in the image of God. He goes on to say, so that we will have dominion in Genesis 1.26, so that we will have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Right? Male and female, both in the image of God. 
Think of this. When God wanted to make something in his likeness, he made a human. He made a human. Not even angels are said to be made in the image of God. right? But Adam and Eve, in their subsequent generations after them, are made in the image of God. And if you remember Genesis 1, mankind's creation is at the end of the creation week so that everything was created perfectly to prepare the way for the coming of the image bearer. So all of creation was created and put in order, so then God created man. And mankind is the crescendo of creation. Mankind is the climax and the glory of the Creator, you see. We have come as the crown jewel of His creation. Mankind is the crown jewel of His creation. Now, it sounds pretty humbling when the God-haters want to diminish humanity and say, it's arrogant to talk how I'm talking right now. Actually, it's arrogant to say that I'm not made in the image of God, it's, and it's arrogant that I have the right to take your life because you bother me. Right? Somehow that's, somehow that's to be uh, humble when you diminish man's nobility. It's actually very wicked because God says you are a noble kind because you're made in the image of God. doesn't make us arrogant. It's not to make us puffed up. It's to realize who we are in the sight of God. And our responsibility as image bearers, according to Genesis, is to have dominion over that which God created. A part of the image of God and to be in his likeness is to exercise dominion over creation. It's not to abuse it. It's not to clear cut, but it is to use it for your good and for the advancement of human life and the glory of God. That's to be an image bearer. You're made in his likeness. Okay? We are the climax of his creation. This dominion that we're to have reveals part of our uniqueness, part of our distinctiveness. When we talk of the sanctity of life, we're saying here is someone who is hand-knit, intricately woven together in the womb, wonderfully made, but also, even more than that, that wonderfully made human is made in the image of God, in the likeness of God. Okay? Um, as image bearers, we possess then an inherent, an inherent dignity. All humans, no matter how evil, there is yet the image of God. No matter how minimal a person or how elevated a person and all in between, all bear the image of God and have an inherent dignity and deserve our respect. Max read this earlier, but I'm going to quote it again. Listen to Psalm 8. This is amazing stuff. This God who is so great that we know the omniscient one, the omnipresent one, the omnipotent one, the one who is eternal, sovereign over all of creation. He says in Psalm 8 verse 4, he says, What is man that you remember him? And the son of man that you care for him. Remember the dignity because we're image bearers. Yet you have made him, man, a little lower than the angels, or a little lower than God, it says in other translations. And you crown him, listen now, you crown him, mankind, with glory and majesty. 
You make him to be ruler over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the animals of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the seas. See, there's a dignity that's inherent because God created this in his image. Abortion's a, da- and a, and a, and a direct assault on the dignity of man and the glory of God. Now, some will say, well, sins came and diminished man's, the glory, the image of God in man. But that's not true. Listen to James chapter 3. New Testament book says this. 3, verse 9 and 10. With it, our tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not be so. Why such, why, why such an, uh, an exhortation to speak to man the same way you speak of God is because man is made in the image of God. To curse man, do you see what he's arguing? Because we are image bearers, to curse an image bearer is to curse the one who created him in whose image they are made in. You see, there's an inherent dignity in mankind, no matter who they are, because they are image bearers of God. And you cannot curse them and then turn around and praise God. You see, that's what he's saying. So there's an inherent dignity in us. In fact, that dignity shows up in 1 Peter with the word honor. Listen to this. Very simple, but rapid-fire exhortations. 1 Peter 2.17, he writes, honor all people. And goes on to say, love the brethren, fear God, honor, same word, the king. Now, in good Bible exegesis, especially in the same verse and only a couple words apart from each other, whatever it means here, it's going to mean here. If we're to fear, if we're to honor the king, we understand that. Honor the royalty, honor the king, honor the president, honor the position. What does it mean to honor, to show respect, to show value, to, to, to exalt high because we put a value on them. That's to honor them. Kids are to honor their parents. Same word. Honor your parents. Honor your mother and father. Exalt them. They deserve to be placed on a high level of value. It also says that same word, honor all people. Can't mean that, though. All doesn't mean all, does it? <laughs> all means all. All kinds of people. Didn't, didn't say all but these people, <laughs> right? Have respect, show value. Recognize that all people are made in the image of God and therefore demand, deserve our respect. This is connected to abortion because the little person in the womb is a people's, is a human. Okay, now, the Bible also tells us, again, we're, we're looking at the dignity as an image bearer. Not only are we wonderfully made, we're image bearers. James says don't show partiality. James 2. Don't favor the rich over the poor. Don't neglect the destitute. The end of chapter 1. 
because they're also image bearers. You see? James 1.27, you remember what it says? Pure and undefiled religion. Now, stopping right there. Religion is basically someone, this is how you follow God. Your religion. You, you're, you, whatever your God is, your religion, you're showing that this is what this God is like. Pure and undefiled religion to be a follower of God is this. Visit orphans and widows in their affliction, in their distress. Why? Because they're image bearers. They have a dignity. And the word visit is so cool. It's the idea of looking over. We get the, we get the word bishop from this. We get, we get overseer from this. So it's not just hanging out, sitting down next to an orphan and saying howdy, visiting. It's actually visiting and seeing what I can do to alleviate their distress. I'm overseeing their well-being. Why? Because they're image bearers. They have a dignity. Widows. And in the first century, there was no people more destitute than orphans and widows. You're talking about people that don't have parents and a woman who doesn't have a man. In the first century, they're delegated to destitution and death. But the Christian is called to recognize, wait a minute. That is a fellow image bearer. They have a dignity. Care for them, you see. That's all connected. Being wonderfully made. We're all wonderfully made and we're all wonderfully made in the image of God. Therefore, there's an inherent dignity that God grants us. Now, how about God's care? And I'm going fast. Since, since we have this distinction compared to all other creatures, learn from God what he says. Listen to this. I think people forget this, neglect this, or don't pay attention. But listen to Matthew 12, 11 and 12. Jesus speaking, he says to them, What man is there among you who has a sheep? And if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out. I think everybody would lift their sheep out of the pit on the Sabbath. Jesus says, continues, how much more valuable then is a man than a sheep? So then is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? He sees argument. If we are so concerned for a mere sheep and we're not concerned for a fellow man, he says you're basically schizo because isn't the man of more value than the sheep? And God does value his critters. He does feed them. He, he makes grass grow so cows can eat it. And it's God's hand. Scripture tells us that from the hand of God. But there is a distinction and an elevation and man has an inherent worth. And he even tells us right there, are you not more valuable than a sheep? How about this thought that to kill a dog, to kill a fish, to kill a child. That's a billboard in Southern California saying that there's no distinction between a dog, a fish, and a boy. And that's supposed to be humbling. That's disgraceful. 
No, you're, you're made in the image, and God says you're of more value. What's so cool is you're of more weight. You have more weight before God than even sheep and critters. Matthew 6, 26, Look at the birds of the air that they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth more than they? And he goes on to say, why do you worry for what you will eat and what you will wear? Look to the birds of the air. Does God not feed them? Yes. He says, aren't you of more value? If he takes care of the lesser, won't he take care of the greater? But the comparison is this. You have more value because you're made in the image of God. You're made in the image of God. How about Jonah? The last two verses of Jonah, Max, I was thinking. Remember what he did when uh, Jonah got upset about the plant? God's response in verses 10 and 11. Listen to this. Then the Lord said, you had pity on, the, he's talking to Jonah, you had pity on the plant for which you did not work, of which you did not cause to grow, which came to be overnight and perished overnight. So should I not have pity on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between the right and left hand and as well as many animals? Jonah was upset about a plant, but he wasn't upset that 120,000 Ninevites were perishing. And he says, shouldn't God be concerned about the Ninevites? Why? Because they are of more value. God causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. He brings about happiness to unbelievers and believers. He bestows dignity on humanity, even evildoers. The weightiness of this is found, think of this now, Lord help me here, to intentionally and premeditatively take another human's life is to purposely destroy one who is made in the image of God, therefore is an assault on the Creator. And the weightiness of this is this. In Genesis 9-6, very clear text, but listen to this. Coming out of, this is Noah coming out of the ark after the flood and God reestablishing some things. And he says this in Genesis 9, 6. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. So if you take a man's life, you forfeit your own. Why? For in the image of God, he made man. The weightiness of taking another human's life intentionally and purposely is to forfeit the right that you have as an image bearer. So says Genesis. Exodus 20 verse 13 of the commandments, Moses writes, you shall not murder. And the idea there is to intentionally take someone's life. It's not prohibition against war and it's not prohibition against execution because throughout the Torah God says to kill this person if that person does this a person guilty of that should be put stoned and put to death this is saying you shall not murder you shall not intentionally put to death someone unlawfully okay so says God how about accidentally hurting somebody Exodus 21 12 through 13 listen to this Exodus 21 12 through 13 he who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. That's pretty clear. 
But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint you a place where he may flee. Fascinating. If it was unintentional, he's delivered from the death penalty. But if it's intentional, he is to be put to death. How about a difference between an animal and a man? Listen to this. Listen to this. Leviticus 24, 17 through 18, Moses writes here, If a man strikes down the life of any human being, he shall surely be put to death. The one who strikes down the life of an animal shall make restitution for it. That's a little different. <laughs> right? So if, if I kill your cow, then I give you my cow. But you don't do that for humans. You forfeit your own life. You see, and then Deuteronomy 27, 24 through 25, listen. Cursed is he who strikes his neighbor in secret, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is he who takes a bribe to strike down innocent blood, and all the people shall say, Amen. So abortion is a great sin. It's a great sin against humanity. It's a great sin against God. The womb is a sacred workshop of God. Abortion is to invade that workshop, workshop, to enter uninvited with malice intent in order to destroy that which God is making in his image. The mother has as much right to kill her own unborn as I do in killing her. How about that? The mother has as much right to kill her unborn child as I do of killing her. We must call it what it is. It is not a woman's choice. It is not my body, my choice. It's not reproductive rights. It's not woman's health care. It is murder of an innocent child. The most vulnerable people in our world are in the most danger. And we do nothing about it. What do we do as individuals? Well, we don't go blow up abortion places as much as I would like to, but you can't do that. You can't take the lives of those who perform or have it done either. We don't commit sin to deal with sin. But what can you do? Well, as it was mentioned earlier, what part I have in this horrible thing by either being indifferent or being part of, I need to repent. I need to ask for God's forgiveness. And 1 John 1, 9 is still in your Bible. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We need to be taking responsibility. Then I would add these things. What should we do after that? We should keep praying that this scourge would go away. We need to pray for officials and rulers in our country to be changed. We need to keep speaking the truth about life. We need not shrink back into our holes. We need to be bold and speak honestly, graciously, clearly, truly that life begins at conception and God has made this little person in his image. We need to vote. That's a right we have in this country. We need to vote the right way. We need to run for office, perhaps. Maybe Daniel ought to be senator, right? I can see you doing that. 
right? Goes with that law degree and that cello you're doing, right? <laughs> right? If you're so led, why, why, wouldn't, why wouldn't the Bible-thumping, Christ-loving person go to Sacramento to promote life? We need that. We need that. That's, that if you're being led that way, go for it, please. We need to volunteer at Alternatives, right? A ministry that's given to getting this out front and helping ladies who are in desperate places and men too. You need to give money to that place. You need to support that place, financial and other places like it. There's one up in Placerville, right? We need to be active in this. How about start a ministry that cares for them? Maybe someone here is being moved and say, man, I want to rescue these ladies, right? I want to rescue these ladies. I want to rescue these babies, right? Why not? Do you realize that you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world? That's what Matthew 5 says. We preserve decay and we illumine the truth for the glory of God. For the glory of God. And then we'll finish here. What of those who have had an abortion? And I have met many. In fact, I know a former executive director of a local pregnancy center when she was a young lady had an abortion. And now she's a fighter for the truth and a fighter for the unborn. And there's many like that. And it's because God has grace upon them. Is there any hope for a doctor or a mother or a father who forces the mother to carry this out? Indeed, there is. This is not the unpardonable sin. There is forgiveness to be found in Jesus Christ, and he freely offers it to those who will come to him in repentance and faith. Yes, this is a great sin. We will not minimize that. This is a great sin. But Jesus is a greater Savior. Where sin is great, his grace is greater still. He went to the cross, innocent he was, bearing our sin. He suffered and died in our place to pay for our sin. He hung there. Now get and remind you of this. This is the message we take out there. And he was treated, Jesus was, by his father on that cross as though he actually committed all of our sins, as though he was an idolater, as though he was an adulterer, as though he committed fornication, as though he was a liar or even a murderer. Isaiah 53, 5. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our peace fell upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Isaiah 53, 6. says, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but Yahweh has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Even abortionists. Sin is sin. He died, was buried, was raised from the dead, and is alive today. Therefore, he can offer full pardon for all of your sins freely. The Savior says, and we close here, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. 
For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We would say, dear sinner, give your burden over to Jesus and do it now. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I ask that you would make us bold for the truth. That you would give us opportunities to rescue those ensnared and trapped in this horrible way. We ask that you would change the hearts of officials and government officials. We pray that you would deliver our governor and our senators and our city council from this sin, from, from spiritual death, and you would illumine the truth to them. We pray for our president and our vice president. We pray that you would have mercy on them, Lord, and you would change their hearts and change their minds, and they would wake up with this newfound passion and desire to want to save life instead of take it. I pray for your church to be gracious and bold, bold as a lion and lowly as a lamb. We thank you for your mercy and grace that you have shown us. May you help us to extend that to others. Until you come again, may we be found faithful for your truth. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. as we finish by singing in Christ alone.
Amen. Thank you, brother. If this subject has brought up something in your heart that needs addressing, we'd love to come alongside of you and help you in any way we can. There's hope in the gospel, and the Lord is sovereign over all things, and he's there for you, so we'd love to address that. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you have made us wondrously, and that we are your creation and you're sovereign over us. We thank you that your word is clear on this subject. And Lord, we pray that you would deliver those who are caught in it. Forgive us for anything that we have contributed to this despair. I pray that you would allow this place to be a beacon of hope. A place where people who are broken, who are hurt, that they can come and find refuge. Not in us, but in you. Help us to point people to Christ who is able to save who's able to redeem, one who's paid for all sins, including this one. I pray that you would build a place like that here and help us to be ministers of that gospel to people who are hurting. Pray now that you would bless us as we go from this place so that we would proclaim this message of the gospel, not only to those who are dealing with this issue, but with every other sin that plagues this world. Because Christ is the answer. Help us to preach Christ faithfully. For your glory we pray this. Amen. You're dismissed.